Hello, and welcome to a slightly different episode of Pulp Today. My father fought in World War II in the European theater in the 20th Armored Division, Armored Reconnaissance, which was at the time still called the United States Cavalry, which I'm sure appealed to the romantic in him when he volunteered. And not to overdo my father's heroism, bravery, or patriotism, he turned 18, he knew that he was going to be drafted, and he, he looked for as he honestly confessed for me, uh, something with a very long training period. And the cavalry, because you had to learn how to drive every machine and fire every weapon, uh, had a fairly long training period. I don't know if you're hearing the air conditioning go on, but there's no way I'm recording this without air conditioning. So why why am I talking about this today? Well, a certain uh, famous personage has been, what's the word I'm looking for, shitting on ver- veterans and military service his entire life from getting out of Vietnam on bone spe- spurs, something that definitely didn't occur to my father in 1943, to, what was it, there was some uh, agreement with uh, one of his ex-wives that he would disown her if the kid went into the military. Anyway, all that uh, all that distasteful nonsense to one side. You know, there are pulp paperbacks that are about World War II as well, and I'm going to talk about a fairly famous one today. When I was a kid, ubiquitous on television was a movie called To Hell and Back. It was the true exploits of the most decorated soldier in World War II, a man named Audie Murphy, who later went on to be an actor, and indeed starred in his own film, the film about him. 30 years old, playing 17 to 20. Uh, And he actually gets away with it because he kind of had a baby face. Alden Ehrenreich in Hail Caesar, if you like that movie, is playing a very, very Audie Murphy-like character without the PTSD from military service hanging over his head. Anyway, I saw the movie a zillion times when I was a kid. Nice, simple World War II combat film. It's very 1950s. It's very bloodless and rah-rah and all of that. And a few years ago, possibly at the paperback show in Glendale, I came upon this, To Hell and Back, by Audie Murphy, a ghost-written, ghost-co-written by a guy named David McClure. And here here was the shock uh, to me. This book is gory and violent and sad and full of shocking moments, and it could not be more different than the sanitized movie made from it. I really kind of expected, since it's, a, you know, the autobiography of a war hero, that it would be really, you know, clean, rah-rah stuff. No. This book is brutal. Brutal and nightmarish. But you'll notice on the cover, we get, uh, you know, you got to have a pretty girl. So I think there's one page in here where there's an Italian girl fixing up a guy's leg while he drinks. That got on the cover, not the uh, nightmarish scenes of combat. So today, I'm going to read to you a little bit of Audie Murphy's harrowing to Helen Back, co-written with David Speck was his nickname, which I feel bad for him already. David Speck McClure. In this section, Murphy very quickly over the course of the novel uh, of, the, of the true story of the autobiography grasps the importance of being willing to kill to survive combat and being willing to kill without thinking about it and being willing to kill automatically and being willing to kill without emotion and it's very very dark stuff and in this sequence he's isolated alone under heavy fire and his best friend in the platoon 
Brandon is also part of this sequence, and he's just seen a couple of other guys in his platoon get killed. So here we go. I am alone now, and the Germans have discovered me. They lay a blistering crossfire directly over my head. I roll into a ditch that runs parallel to a thick cane break leading up to the hill. As I round a slight bend in the gully, I run head-on into two Germans. For an instant, they recoil in surprise, and that is their mistake. My combat experience has taught me the value of split seconds. Before the Germans can regain their balance, I kill them both with a carbine. Near the edge of the forest, I locate a group of krauts in a series of foxholes. We duel until my ammunition is exhausted. Then I retreat down the ditch. To compete with the enemy's automatic weapons, I need more firepower. Below the farmhouse, I find a light machine gun squad. The Germans have its members pinned to the earth, and no amount of arguing or cursing on my part can get them to stir from their spot. So I seize their gun and drag it up the ditch alone. It is perhaps best this way. I reason that if one man can do the job, why risk more? I try setting up the gun in the ditch, but from this position the bullets fly harmlessly over the heads of the Germans. Despite the lack of cover, I drag the gun out in an open field directly in front of the enemy's strongpoint. Now the advantage is mine. I am firing uphill and may lie flat upon the earth, but the Germans, to shoot down the slope at me, must expose head and shoulders over the embankments of fronting their foxholes. By the time my gun is ready for action, bullets are popping within a foot of my body. I judge the range, press the trigger, and turn the stream of lead on anything that remotely resembles a crowd. Screams of agony come from the foxholes. I rip the position again and wait in readiness, but nothing stirs. I pick up my gun and stalk up the hill to investigate. A young German, who appears no older than twenty, sits on the ground, his eyes filled with unspeakable terror. I am on the point of giving him a burst when I notice that his left jaw has been shot off. He tries to say something to me with his half-mouth, and as his chin moves, blood spurts in jets from a severed artery. I brace myself against sentiment. I can do nothing for the boy except put him out of his misery. I raise my gun, but cannot pull the trigger. His staring eyes, already filling with the shadows of death, still plead for life. I step around him and examine the other foxholes. Each contains a body or two. One stirs. I give it a burst for precaution. Now an enemy machine gun opens up on me. I hit the dirt but cannot locate the gunner. The fire, however, is coming from my left. I set up my gun and rake the area with lead until my last cartridge is spent. Then I race for the cover of the ditch again and scuttle down to reconnoiter. Recovering my carbine, I hold it ready for action while I wonder what to do next. At the sound of a moving body, I wheel about. It's Brandon. He grins broadly. What are you trying to do, he asks. Win yourself a wooden cross? Where are the other guys? Pin down, so they say. I found out you were up here all by yourself, and I says to myself, that's Murph trying to hog all the glory. Couldn't let you get by with that. You shouldn't have come up. Why not? This isn't a private war, is it? I wouldn't know. Neither would I. Come on. They can kill us, but they can't eat us. It's against the law. As we start up the ditch, the canes at our side suddenly part, and two Germans fire at us point-blank. A bullet clips off part of Brandon's right ear, but he does not flinch. Whirling, he kills both men with just two shots from his carbine. I examine his wound. The blood trickling from it runs down the side of his face and drips off his chin. Better go back and get it dressed, I say. And leave you? Oh, no. You don't pull that one on me. Don't be a fool. He pitches me a clip of ammo and says, I was born a fool and haven't improved since. Where do we go from here? The ditch has become decidedly unhealthy. 
a machine gun is feeling out our position, and from the opposite side of the cane break, hand grenades are being lobbed at us. Sliding up the gully, we locate the machine gun. It is just up the hill from a foxhole sunk beneath a cork tree. Putting a blast of fire on the gun crew, we dash for the hole. At the bottom of the chest-deep pit, two Germans sit with their heads between their knees. They never know what hit them. Quickly lowering our carbines, we shoot them carefully in the head and dive in on top of the bodies just as the machine gun opens up. Smiling, Brandon wipes the blood and sweat off his face with his sleeve. Have you got any idea how to get us out of this? He asks. I'm open to suggestion. We should have looked it up in the field manual. Cautiously raising our helmets above the surface of the ground, we draw fire from the machine gun. The bullets pop at least two feet above us. At ground level, we decide our heads will be relatively safe. Heaving two hand grenades, we rise suddenly and empty our carbines into the gun emplacement. Our action is followed by utter silence. Then the Germans yell, Kamerad! Brandon peers over the edge of the hole. They're waving a handkerchief, he says. I'll go get them. Keep down, I urge. You can't trust them. Murph, says he. You're getting to be a plum cynic. They've had enough. He climbs from the hole nonchalantly and stands upright. That's all the enemy is waiting for. I hear the slash of machine gun fire. As Brandon topples back into the pit, he softly mutters Murph, stunned. I lie for a moment with the two dead Germans beneath me and my comrade on top. Carefully, I ease myself from under Brandon. An abrupt movement may cause his wounds to hemorrhage. I grab his wrist, but there is no beat to his pulse. I start yelling like an insane man for the medics, but I might as well be shouting at the moon. I am all alone, and the hill is rattling with fire. For the first time in the war, I refuse to accept the facts. While Brandon grows cold beneath my hand, I keep telling myself he is not dead. He can't be dead, because if he's dead, the war is all wrong, and Brandon has died in vain. Then I get the curious notion that he needs fresh air. I lift the body from the hole and stretch it beneath the cork tree. Why am I not shot during this process? I shall never understand. Instinctively, I spin about to find a machine gun being trained upon me from a position a few yards to my right. I leap back into the hole, jerk the pin from a grenade, and throw it. At its blast, I scramble from the pit with my carbine. But the grenade has done its work well. One of the two Germans manning the gun has his chest torn open. The other has been killed by a fragment that pierced his eye. I pick up their gun and methodically check it for damage. It is in perfect condition. Holding it like a BAR for firing from the hip, I start up the hill. I remember the experience as I do a nightmare. A demon seems to have entered my body, and my brain is coldly alert and logical. I do not think of the danger to myself. My whole being is concentrated on killing. Later, the men pinned down in the vineyard tell me that I shout pleas and curses at them because they do not come up to join me. When I find the gun crew that betrayed Brandon, the men are concentrating on targets downhill. They do not see me, and I have time to take careful aim before pulling the trigger. As the lacerated bodies flop and squirm, I rake them again, and I do not stop firing while there is a quiver left in them. In a little while, all resistance on the hill has been wiped out. The company moves up, and we halt on the crest to reorganize. The voices of the men seem to come to me through a thick wall. My hands begin to tremble, and I feel suddenly weak. Sinking to the ground, I wait until the company moves off through the trees. Then I go back down the hill and find Brandon. 
I check his pockets to see that all his personal effects are secure. I open his purse and take a last look at the little girl with the pigtails. I remove his pack and make a pillow for his head. And then I sit by his side and bawl like a baby. An insect begins chirping half-heartedly. The leaves on the cork trees rustle. After a little while, I get up, wipe the tears from my eyes, and walk over the hill to rejoin my company. Audie Murphy to Helen Back, co-written with David McClure. Maybe it goes without saying after reading that that Audie Murphy suffered from PTSD most of his life, all of his life, following the events of World War II. On screen, he's a he's actually a, a pretty good actor, and uh, there's an intensity in his gaze that is completely incongruous with what a handsome, baby-faced lad he appears to be, and all that. I think you can find the source of all that in that book. So that's Pulp Today for today, a remembrance of uh, those who deserve our respect. You know, what personalizes some of this for me, aside from my father being a veteran, is that a few years ago I worked on a documentary about... uh, Blackjack Pershing, the American general that won World War I for us. And uh, I stood in those cemeteries in the Meuse Argonne at Montfaucon. It is an unforgettable experience. It is an undeniably moving experience. And that anyone could look at that sacrifice uh, and avoid that experience for fear of getting their hair must uh, is really beneath contempt. And uh, carry that with you for the rest of the day, if you would. Thank you. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.